I'm Grant Oliphant, and this is We Can Be. It is no secret that COVID-19 has hit the creative community with particular force, causing canceled exhibits and fundraisers, closing venues, and putting many arts education programs in jeopardy. A Forbes magazine piece that came out this week estimates that in the period from April 1 through July 31, around 2.7 million Americans lost their arts-related jobs, while more than $150 billion in creative goods and services evaporated. These figures represent almost a third of all jobs in the creativity field and just under 10% of annual art-related sales. This, of course, is happening at the exact moment when we need the unflinching honesty and beauty of art more than ever, as the Black Lives Matter movement gains momentum and makes crystal clear the inequities faced by black and brown communities. All of this makes the work of our next guest all the more potent and of the moment. D.S. Kinzel is, in his own words, a, quote, multidisciplinary artist and cultural agitator, I love that, who in 2014 co-founded Boom Concepts, an art collective dedicated to the advancement of black and brown artists from marginalized communities across America. D.S. holds a degree in child and family studies and is an accomplished artist himself, concentrating in the mediums of painting, public art installations, and performance. You can see some of that work in his book, Totems, Shrines, and Sacraments, Street Sculptures by D.S. Kinzel, which was published earlier this year. He is the curator of Activist Print, a collaborative public art program of the Andy Warhol Museum. And you can see a digital assemblage of his own work through Instagram's hashtag Kinzel Collection. D.S., welcome to We Can Be. Woo, 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 woo. <laughs> oh, that's the best response I've had. <laughs> hey, let's start with the phrase you use to describe yourself, the multidisciplinary artist and cultural agitator, a role that I always appreciated before, but I've been appreciating especially lately. What does that phrase mean to you? My introduction into art was through hip-hop culture, and hip-hop culture in its essence is multidisciplinary. You know, you have the performer, you have the musician with the turntable, you have the visual artist with the aerosol can, you have the movement artist or dancer. You know, I center on visual arts grounded in graffiti or street art. I do a lot of painting and, you know, visual installations. But it's great to be able to explore and expand my practice and also, you know, challenge my colleagues and contemporaries to do the same thing and express ourselves through multiple disciplines. And, you know, being an agitator, that's just the way of life for me. That's something that's really, <laughs> it's like part of my real authentic self. But also, you know, what I tell a lot of the students I work with is that agitation is the way in which things become clean. You know, that's how clarity comes. Agitation is how your washing machine works. Hopefully through agitation, you know, the work can provide some clarity uh, and bring truth to light. One of the first times I had an experience with you was you and I were attending a community meeting about the role of the arts in dealing with the previous wave of issues around black rights and violence against the black community. And the organizers of the group were about to wrap up and they called on one of the white folks in the room and you're like, whoa, wait a minute, we're having this meeting about this and you're going to give the last word to the <laughs> white guy in the room. You know, I instantly liked you. <laughs> 
is that capacity to just not hesitate and dive right in and say what's on your mind, something that you grew up with? Yeah. You know, my parents, my family, my grandparents, they really taught us to express ourselves and respect what we had to offer to a space. My parents really taught me how to be authentic. And, you know, my grandfather, the S in DS, that's Shelton, you know, he has had a huge impact on, you know, my personality and being able to speak up and speak out in different spaces. One of my strengths has always been just like directly calling and identifying things. I like to check in with other people to make sure we're all seeing the same thing. I appreciated the authenticity of it too, and have learned since, you know, that it is true to who you are. You actually came from, I think, the neighborhood where Teeny Harris and Pulitzer Prize winning playwright August Wilson grew up and went to the same high school as Andy Warhol. Do you sort of feel a sense of connection in your work with that lineage? You know, I'm really honored to be continuing the legacy of artists who have come before me. You Mm -hmm. know, just this week here in Pittsburgh, we lost a cultural icon. uh, Mr. George Gist passed away, who Mm -hmm. a nationally known artist has been practicing here for many years. He was a musician as well. So, you know, me being from Pittsburgh, me being from the same neighborhood as August Wilson, the Hill District, and, you know, getting a little essence from Andy Warhol. Right. I am just honored and I try to live up to the legacy of those who have come before me. So our popular icons that everyone knows, it's some big shoes to fill. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yes, indeed. Those are. What's the first art that you remember? When I was in high school, you know, we had a great art teacher who took us to the Carnegie International. And that was my first experience of seeing contemporary art in a way that wasn't a classical painting Mm. on the wall. And that is one of the first times that I was like really sparked. Now in regards to, you know, being an artist uh, in relation to hip hop, every day when I walk to middle school in the Hill District, there's this huge graffiti piece and it's still there. On the wall, it says Liger, L-Y-G-E-R. And I would see that every day and I was just amazed by the hand style and the scale of it. And my parents bought me my first Jay-Z CD in my lifetime, volume one. His personality and setting and approach to his discipline has had a huge influence on, you know, how I present, how I talk about being an artist. There's a bunch of these influences being dropped heavy onto my personality during some formative years that have helped shape me into the artist and the man I am today. Did anybody say to you at any point in your development, hey, you know, you could be an artist or you could, this could be a career for you? You know, my friends were some of my biggest supporters and still are and have been always really critical of my work. One guy in particular, he's the best man at my wedding. If he likes something, I rarely get him to like anything. Yeah. But if he likes something, it's usually really popular. Oh, interesting. Uh, but you know, People here in Pittsburgh, I've had a ton of mentors and support systems, you know, from institutions to individuals that have always either given me a chance or given me a space to learn and make mistakes. So I'm just really thankful for that opportunity because I'm not classically trained as an artist. 
but I've been able to use a lot of different facilities and institutions and programs in order to grow my practice to being on this little podcast today. Yeah. A recurring motif in your recent art is a black outline of a heart with two X's for eyes and a downturned mouth uh-huh. placed over intricately colored backgrounds. How did that icon come about and what do you hope others feel when they see it? So initially when creating that icon, and I wanted to create something that was more symbolic and also thinking of an icon that could be self-reflective. The heart kind of represents an artist, heartfelt, kind of wearing your art on your sleeve, wearing your heart on your sleeve. It varies in its kind of communication of emotion. You typically associate a heart with love or, you know, it could be a broken heart or something. It could be mourning. It could be happiness. So I typically try to place the layers in other composition in relation to the heart to communicate some type of emotion. So the heart becomes more of an icon in a portrait as opposed to, you know, your direct connection with love and what it typically has meant. It's interesting because for somebody who thinks of himself and is an agitator, you make a cornerstone of your work philosophically as cultural space keeping. So you're sort of fighting for something. The heart isn't a symbol that we would typically associate with that. And I'm curious if you wrestle with that in your art, the intersection of love and struggle. Yeah, you know, for me too, the heart also represents just being alive, being present. Mm-hmm. You know, without your heart, you're not here. Right. Part of resistance for me, my family, my community, a lot of times, like resistance is an act of love. You know, how can people evolve without a bit of agitation and trying to find true intersectionality, which is simply humanity, you know? So right. we want to present that idea as well you know, through the heart of just like basic humanity. But, you know, agitation is part of humanity. So it's always going to be agitating until, you know, we get some clarity and come to bring that truth to light. What do you say to people who say, you know, all of that's well and good, DS, but we got enough agitation in our lives. I don't need it from my art. (laughs) And and I'm sure you've heard it. So how do you help people understand agitation? You know, not everybody wants a painting with the word nigger painted across it or nigger painted across it, huge and bright lettering. And the work also isn't for everyone to acquire. If folks aren't like really interested in being agitated by their artwork, my artwork probably isn't for them. And, you know, thankfully I have built an institution that is agitating the field by creating space for black, brown, femme, and queer artists. And I'm sure like one of the aesthetics from our artists on our roster will speak to somebody. Let's talk about Boom and the space that you've created because that's also part of you and who you are and what you're doing. Can you just say a little bit about what Boom does and what your intention around it is? Yeah, you know, with Boom, it's an extension of my practice. I see it kind of as painting with space. You had mentioned the cultural space keeping that exists in performance art and street art, and then that exists at Boom Concepts, being a space where creative entrepreneurs, artists, teaching artists, educators, uh, small business owners can generate income, learn about the craft, develop their portfolio, and make money, you know, because the reality is we live in the system where the bills are due next week. Yeah. So let's come back to you for a moment. Your hashtag project, which includes Black Lives Matter masks, 
and your Andy Warhol Museum collaboration that asked what do people say when they see you have all examined violence against people of color. Do you consider your work to be protest art? It is agitational propaganda. That's a good phrase. Okay, so say more. Yeah, agitprops are, you know, what artists have historically used for good, for evil, for whatever to, you know, mass communicate a message out to people, you know, out to communities in order to advocate, in order to agitate and advertise their ideas. So, you know, I am following that lineage of I am a man posters and Black Panther posters and, you know, all the imagery you see that comes out of the movement, you know, any type of labor's rights kind of visuals that you may see across the country and across the world. You know, we're just continuing that vein of work. So it can be used in protest. It can also exist in the gallery. I want the work to be able to exist in any space. In any context, right. You're relatively recently a dad, and you and I were talking before we got started about how now you're wearing dad shorts and all of that, (laughs) focusing on your daughter and being a dad. Has your artwork also been affected by what's going on around us in terms of the racial justice movement and the COVID environment that we're operating in? Have you felt the need to adjust what you're doing in the art space with this? I haven't. You know, I've been pretty consistent on the themes of my work, you know, regardless if it's in vogue or not, if it's popular, if it's brought up in conversation. I'm happy that more people have eyes on the messaging. That's always what you want. You know, so people are responding to a series of work that I have that's literally four years old. Yeah, right. Yeah. As I've matured as a father, a husband, a business owner, an artist. My work has matured as well. So like I've been trying to write more and I've been writing a little bit more about my work and I am looking to create space on how to maybe scale up some of these ideas through residencies and and through other just like incubation opportunities. So I think, you know, previously my work has had a more direct urgency And I think as I've matured and becoming a father and kind of watching kind of global responses or lack of responses to emergency, it's making me be more intentional, tactical, and probably putting a little more game planning and what I want to share in regards to my practice. This past spring, as we saw the protest movement uh, after the murder of George Floyd erupt and begin to expand, and as protests swelled around around the country, including here, a 750-foot Black Lives Matter mural appeared in downtown Pittsburgh. Pittsburgh's tribute to the national movement was initially painted Saturday by two white artists from Philadelphia. Not having black artists, black Pittsburgh artists, did not sit well with the city's black artistic community. Kind of upset, disappointed, just, you know, a, a lot of different things, but um, I do know that it was something that could be fixed. It became a controversial moment, and the artist then later turned around and invited black and brown artists to come in and amend the mural. But what was your reaction as somebody whose space this is to that controversy? It was not an invitation for black artists to, like, make amends. Like, you invited me to this podcast. I invite someone to my home. 
Right. That implies that there was ownership of the space to begin with. Yeah. That is like part of the issue. Movement work is more than putting your name on the wall. You know, graffiti or bombing or vandalism, wherever world you live in, has historically been used as a voice for the people. You know, graffiti is the only thing in hip hop that gets you arrested and it's illegal. If you don't own that wall, that is like a, a direct agitation with authority. Graffiti writing in New York is a vocation. Its traditions are handed down from one youthful generation to the next. To some, it's art. To most people, however, it is a plague that never ends. A symbol that we've lost control. Graffiti is not an art. Graffiti is the application of a medium to a surface. I will show you graffiti, such as the letters on the end of that car directly in back of me. Is that an art form? I don't know. I'm not an art critic. But I can sure as hell tell you that that's a crime. You know, when we're doing movement work, that it takes a lot of conversation and building consensus. And people cannot sacrifice themselves like in acts of martyrdom, you know, without some like authenticity or direct communication with the folks that they're representing or the voice that you're uplifting. We want to know that you're really with us because this region has a history of white allies not standing through the fight, not standing through the battle. And furthermore, a point that was made was if there were black artists dressed up as construction workers, you know, you might be making a mural of those black artists the next day. That's so true. Like if there were a group of black artists down there painting, there would be a very different interaction, news story, and end result. It's less about the practitioners and what they did and the sacrifices that they made because, like, their intention was real. We've been in communication. There's been amazing projects afterwards as a result of that. We want to be in community. We want to see multiple pieces. We want to see more artists get an opportunity for public art. And we want to see our allies really stand with us. And the one thing I do want to say is, you know, the gentleman who created the original Black Lives Matter piece, they're standing, they're walking, they're marching, they're in community, they're in conversation, they've done other pieces. So it's like what started as a point of like misunderstanding through some agitation brought like a lot of clarity and truth to light and like more better projects and black artists getting paid, black artists getting paid. It's so helpful to hear your your assessment of that situation. And, you know, this last point that you made about the possibility of Black artists being recognized for their work and also being paid for their work actually was, I think, part of your rationale for co-founding Boom in 2014. You had this sense of the absence of Black artists in galleries and, and artists from marginalized communities showing in galleries, and you wanted to correct that. Can you talk a little bit about what you saw at that time and how you're specifically working to try and correct it? You know, I think that vein and that approach really comes from, you know, my grounding in hip hop culture. It's like, you know, part of hip hop is the hustler getting to it. You know, it's not about being poor. It's not about being broke. It's about having some flash, having a living. There's a movie about Spike Lee and his colleagues in New York around the time they were all coming up. 
And Spike Lee says, yeah, like we didn't want to be poor. There was a generation of filmmakers above me, Charles Burnett, people like that. The black independent filmmakers, they would make their films and then travel to all these film festivals three or four years. I said, you know what? There's gotta be a better way. People forget, do the right thing open United States of America, June 30th, 1989. Batman opened the same day. Universal Pictures is not gonna spend the money that Warner, Warner Brothers is gonna spend on Batman. So we had, to, we had to find other ways, you know? And that's how we did, you know, through uh, trying to hype it up. Yeah, we don't glorify being starving artists, you know? And we want everyone to have an opportunity to work on their practice. And the biggest piece for small entrepreneurs is the opportunity to fail. You need to have the opportunity to fail. And we've really provided that at Boom, you know, the opportunity to fail, the opportunity to grow, the opportunity to have some honest criticality that's not based on your identity, right? Because that's oftentimes what the criticality is based on. Criticality at Boom is based on the work and the work ethic, you know, being an artist, it's it's so amazing that you get to create something out of nothing and then place a value on it. Right. Like right. that is literally magic. <laughs> mm-hmm. So at Boom Concepts, we have worked as hard as we can to support people in the development of their practice. Why do you think in a town that has a great black arts tradition, why was there a lack of support for that when you created Boom? Why does there continue to be a lack of support for that, do you think? The field has changed. There is more support and job opportunities than there were six years ago when we started Boom. You know, we've pressed on institutions and organizations and helped artists. Like, you know, there has to be some field development as well and field building. You know, so that's a big part of Boom's mission. Racism is why. Like, mm-hmm. racism is the reason. The desire to oppress mm-hmm. and not really operate in a fair market. People don't understand it's hard to be successful in a fair market because a lot of people are talented and innovation is always around the corner. So it's like there has to be oppression for somebody to win or do this or that. And, you know, and if you even think of, you know, our pop icons and legends, whether it be from 50 years ago to today, like they had to leave in order to, you know, really generate the love that was necessary. So, you know, hopefully the region can shift. This little corner right here of the country has a lot of diverse thought and talent, but, you know, we need to stand up and be confident in our expertise and racism has to not be there or be there less. This is like one of the worst places for black people and black women to be. A friend of mine told me that Pittsburgh, we're on the front lines of whiteness, you know, just based on the demographics, right. the majority white region. I've heard other black artists talk about this, and we know that Pittsburgh has this overwhelming percentage of white population compared to other cities and and regions of our size. Is it hard to be an artist in the context of that? I think the diverse narratives get erased for this region in general. The region has been whitewashed to a certain degree. 
You know, it's not always the black narrative. It can be the femme narrative. It can be the queer narrative. Those narratives, those existences, those successes are not shared. You only hear about the struggles, the challenges, and the defeats. Like, it gets boring because in a healthy ecosystem, just in nature, there is a diverse, like a real diversity. Like, this is what emergent strategy is all about. It's like, yo, if we look at nature, a healthy ecosystem, like, has a lot of very different things. Now, I often wonder why people who fight against the diversity that we have and the need to have more, you know, what they think a perfectly static society would be like. Something important is being missed there. Set aside notions of justice and humanity and all of that. It's just how you survive as a species even. Yeah, it's very basic. It's how you survive as a species. So, I mean, and it's almost tied to humanity. It's like, oh, you don't want us all to survive. Yeah. You know, that's the message. Right. You, know, you want like a the same story, the same experience. And it's like that. I'm bored with that. I'm really bored with that. Yeah. So what's most exciting to you right now? My child, my wife, you know, it's it's really grounded right now, Grant. This grand pause, this we've been calling it a short hibernation. <laughs> good. Been I like it. So good, you know, for my personal, for my business partnership. For my personal practice, my household, I'm looking at my colleagues who are still able to to work and generate income off of their practice in different ways. You've actually become a teacher as well. You know, part of what you do is develop other artists professionally. I'm just curious if you have anything you want to say to aspiring young artists who may be listening to this podcast. You know, I'm going to steal this from my wife because she shared this with me. If you don't think you can make money off of this, you probably should not be doing it. And that is a hard, hard, hard realization. The great thing is that the field is vast. So you might not be on stage, but you may be doing production, or you might be doing the lights, or maybe you're writing, or maybe you're managing artists, or maybe you're a teacher. You got to figure out how to make money off this. Otherwise, you're a hobbyist. And that's okay, but there is a distinct separation between the two. Most hobbyists don't have to claim this on their taxes. <laughs> right, right. Good point. A theme throughout this conversation was your approach to art in terms of cultural agitation, agitprop being the provocateur. It reminds me in a way, in an artistic sense of John Lewis's Good Trouble. You know, you're stirring the pot to make sure that society thinks differently. And I loved the phrase that you used as part of that conversation about how resistance is an act of love and how can other people possibly evolve without a little agitation. You noted that graffiti art is the one thing in hip hop that can get you arrested and that if black artists had been the first painting that wall, a very different outcome might have happened. And that white artists need to think about that, that there needs to be engagement, and that in fact, when there was, good things began to happen because people came together in community and there was stick to which has been a history with white allies in this community. We talked about the ways and very pragmatic ways in which Boom works to glorify artists, to help create space for artists to learn about the craft and the business. 
I loved your notion of art as literally magic, that you get to create something out of nothing, but that there is a business side to that, that you have to make work as well. The good news is that the field is vast and there are lots of opportunities for getting into that. This notion that we're on the front lines of whiteness, I think is a takeaway well beyond the arts that that the region tends to be whitewashed, that the accomplishments and successes of excellence in the black community tend to be whitewashed away or dismissed or ignored. And if our region wants to prosper, then we have to end that practice and robustly embrace the more diverse narratives that already exist and then build on them. And you said this thing that I think is really important as a takeaway for the whole conversation, which is that, you know, in a healthy ecosystem, there are lots of parts that's how it stays as a healthy ecosystem. <laughs> and so, you know, what you're doing is holding up for us the notion of a story of Pittsburgh that's about the many, many different parts. You know, the name of this program is We Can Be. How would you finish that sentence, We Can Be What? We can be better together. 